Hi, welcome to my podcast, where today I'll talk about Jesus telling the parable of the sower. My name is Tim Herner. I am a Christian author and apologist, a graduate of Houghton College and of Harvard Law School, where I was an editor of the Harvard Law Review. As an attorney, my primary role has been as a general counsel. Therefore, I call the six books that I've written the General Counsel Series. The first four books of the series outline the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, providing scriptural backing for the final installments of the series that outline the history of America and the history of the Church Universal. I post my latest thoughts regularly on my website, timharner.com. For this podcast, please reflect on the questions. In what aspects of your life are you like the path where the seed of God's Word does not take root at all? In what aspects of your life are you like rocky soil? In what aspects of your life is your fruitfulness choked by thorns and thistles? In what aspects of your life are you good soil? And now, as I talk about Jesus telling the parable of the sower, Let's pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in the sight of the Lord our God, who is our strength and our Redeemer. Today's thoughts are based on the chapter, Jesus Tells the Parable of the Sower, in my book, Hoping in the Lord. That same day, Jesus went out of the house where his family tried to get him to stop preaching and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Jesus did not stop his ministry despite worries caused by the slanders of the Pharisees, by the danger that the Pharisees would kill him, by the crushing workload, or by the well-intentioned but misguided advice of his family, to quit while he still could. Instead, on that same day, Jesus left the crowded house and went to the lake so that even more people could hear him. Indeed, the crowd grew so great that Jesus had to speak to them while sitting in a boat with the people standing on the shore. Jesus must have been struck by the sharp contrast between the eagerness of his family to stop his preaching and the eagerness of the crowds to hear his preaching. If his life was going to fulfill God's purposes, Jesus must press on, despite all trouble, persecutions, and worries. To teach this truth, he told the crowds this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. 
He who has ears, let him hear. Afterwards, Jesus explained the parable to his disciples. He said, Listen, then, to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. This kind of person is like the Pharisees, who were always criticizing and opposing Jesus. They did not understand God's word, even though they studied and taught it constantly. In fact, that very day they had been so misguided as to charge that Jesus was an ally of Satan. The next group of people who Jesus described in his parable started well, but ended badly. As Jesus put it, the one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. Earlier that day, Jesus' mother and brothers tried to get Jesus to become this kind of person. Seeing the danger to someone they loved, they tried to get him to stop following God's plan for his life. But Jesus resisted this temptation. He said, My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. So despite the trouble and persecution Jesus faced, he did not fall away. Some troubles or persecutions can be massive, like the risk of being crucified. However, I think that often it's the little troubles and persecutions that wear us down. Our adrenaline gets up for the big problems, but the routine discouragements of life drain our energy and resolve. I often think of this when I am jogging. I do pretty good refusing to let the big troubles and persecutions of jogging stop me. I dress warmly when it's cold. I run early in the day and stop to cool off and get a drink when it's hot. I warm up well to overcome aching, tired muscles. I take my glasses off when they become so covered with rain that I can't see through them. And I wear my reflecting vest in the dark so cars can see me. All these troubles and persecutions of jogging just make me more stubborn and determined to put on putting one aching foot ahead of the other aching foot. But the thing that comes closest to making me stop and give up is the littlest thing of all. My shoelaces keep coming untied. I have a terrible time tying my shoes. Maybe it's because I'm left-handed, but my mother taught me how to tie my shoes right-handed. Or maybe it's just because I'm naturally clumsy. But again and again when I'm walking, I have to ask people to stop while I tie my shoes. And sometimes when I'm jogging, I'll stop four or five times within a mile to retie my running shoes. As I crouch to tie my running shoes, I feel the cold or heat much more intensely. If it's raining, the shoelaces get wet, and then it's even harder to tie them. I worry about whether a car can see me when I'm such a small, low object. 
But the worst thing is that my leg muscles tighten up as I crouch. They ache while I'm tying my running shoes. And it's hard to get my legs going again when I stand up to resume jogging. Furthermore, this littlest of problems helps cause a big problem. The constant tightening of my muscles and the strain of getting them going again occasionally leads to muscle pulls that keep me from jogging for several days until they heal. So it's the littlest problem that is most likely to make me give up jogging. And I suspect this is true in much of life, that it is the little nagging troubles and persecutions that make us fall away from following God's words. It's the snow in the driveway or being tired Sunday morning that keeps us from getting to church, not a potential concentration camp or firing squad if we are caught going to church. It's being cut off in traffic or coming home tired from work that gets us to lose our temper, not being spat upon because we are a Christian. But there is another danger that we face. Even if we do not fall away from following God's ways because of troubles and persecutions, we may not implement God's ways in our lives. We may not produce the good fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our world. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We may not bless all peoples in the promised land. For people who do not produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Jesus had these words of warning. The one who receives the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. These kinds of concerns also prompted Jesus' family to try to stop his preaching earlier that day. The crowd that gathered around Jesus was so great that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. I'm sure his family also worried about how Jesus was going to support himself financially if he escaped the plots to kill him long enough to need the money. Why, they wondered, can't Jesus just come home and work as a carpenter again like he used to? This is madness to continue being a preacher despite so many problems and risks. Jesus refused to let such worries or the deceitfulness of wealth stop him from doing God's will. As a carpenter, he well knew the importance of being a wise man who builds the house of his life on a firm foundation. And the firmest foundation possible is to follow the advice Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. During that sermon, Jesus explained why we must not let worries stop us from doing what we know is right. He said, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. 
Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Once again, I have learned the wisdom of what Jesus taught by applying his teaching to sports. Only this time the sport is golf instead of jogging. Considering how poorly I golf, it's scary to think that I draw any lessons for life from things I've learned while playing golf. But in sports as in life, the best lessons often come from our biggest mistakes. One of the things I've learned from playing golf so poorly is that it's very important not to worry while you're playing. You must keep concentrating solely on the golf swing you're making at that moment. You can't start thinking about how good or bad your last swing was. You can't start worrying about how difficult the next hole will be. To paraphrase Jesus, do not worry about the next golf swing. For the next golf swing will worry about itself. Each golf swing has enough trouble of its own. I often remind myself about this wisdom while I'm driving to work in the morning. I start worrying about all the things I have to do at work and all the things that can go wrong at work. I start panicking. How can I ever get all these things done? It's impossible. But then I calm myself down remembering that all I have to worry about is today. Each day has enough trouble of its own, and tomorrow will worry about itself. To calm myself further and gain more courage, I also sometimes think back to a practice for overcoming worry that I learned when I was a student at Houghton College. A guest speaker told us to think about the 23rd Psalm when we're worrying. It will always give us hope. And it's true. If I'm feeling scared and overwhelmed, I remember, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Another good piece of advice comes from someone who counseled a number of United States presidents. He'd learned that the most important thing to give a president was confidence. Confidence that the president could make a difference for good. Confidence that he could find a way to survival and victory through the nightmares of the Cold War. This advisor said that all the presidents were very aware of the risks and obstacles they faced. So what he tried to give them was the courage and hope that they could succeed. And that is why worrying hurts our ability to produce good fruit. In order to be good soil that produces a bountiful harvest of good works yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown, we must not worry about what can go wrong 
or about how wealthy we want to be. We must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the promised land where all peoples will be blessed. We must hear God's word and put it into practice, worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. We must overcome our worries by hoping in the Lord. Furthermore, we must apply the wisdom of this parable of the sower to each aspect of our life. People like to think about those aspects of their lives that already bear good fruit. But if we are really going to make progress in our spiritual pilgrimage so that we live more and more like Jesus, we must think about those aspects of our lives where we are not bearing good fruit. That way, instead of puffing ourselves up with pride like a Pharisee by thinking about how good we are, we will see ways that we need to change our lives to become a better person. In some of those aspects of our lives, perhaps in visiting those in prison, we are like the path where the seed of God's word does not take root in our lives at all. In other aspects of our lives, perhaps in loving our spouses, we are like rocky soil. We start our marriage with deep love for each other, but because our love has no root, no deep commitment to each other, and to following God's ways in our marriage, our joy lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution hits our marriage, we quickly fall away from each other. In other areas of our lives, such as working for justice for exploited people, we do not do all that we should do because we are worried about risking our wealth and popularity by helping poor and unpopular people. We must also apply the wisdom of this parable of the sower to every aspect of every group of people. There are always ways that our family, and any family, can become more fruitful in applying God's word to our lives and to our relationships with each other. There are always ways that our church, and any church, can become more fruitful in applying God's word to our lives and to our relationships with each other. There are always ways that the United States and any nation can become more fruitful in applying God's word to our lives and to our relationships with each other. And there are always ways that all humanity can become more fruitful in applying God's word to our lives and to our relationships with each other. Because any group of people will do better if they put into practice these words of Jesus his golden rule from the Sermon on the Mount. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. I hope you enjoyed this podcast today. If you did, please share it with a friend and find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as on my website, timharner.com. My book, Hoping in the Lord, contains citations to sources including the scriptures. Until we are together again, may the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. May the Lord turn his face toward us and give us peace.